Welcome, everybody, to episode 20 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. Today is December 31st of 2021. We're psyched to have Kyle Ramagas as our guest tonight. The goals here are pretty simple, bring in great guests and try to mine as much gold as from them in 30 to 90-ish minutes. Uh, short, sweet, and deep. On the mic tonight, we have Lane Zahorik and myself, Nick. Uh, so welcome to the crew, Lane. This is Lane's first show, so we're stoked to have you on the team, man. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, surprised and uh, grateful for the invite. Yeah, man, we're stoked to have you, man. Uh, big fan, and I and I can't wait till more people get to hear Lane's voice. I wish they could see his face because, man, is this man handsome. <laughs> um, our guest tonight, uh, Kyle. Kyle, how you doing tonight, man? Doing well, man. How are you? Uh, I'm excited, man. It's a beautiful night. It was uh, it was a fun year. It was a it was a crummy year at times, but overall, it was a good year for us. And uh, I'm excited uh, to mine a little bit more gold from the end of the year. Yeah, it's going to be a good time, man. I was uh, pretty stoked when you guys reached out to me. So just a brief intro on you, um, Chief. You are new uh, BC of training for East Montgomery County in Texas? Uh, yes, recently promoted. Uh, so I took over as training chief in November of this year. And it's been kind of a roller coaster. I've uh, been very busy since I took over. A uh, lot of uh, data entry, a lot of backtracking, and uh, it's uh, I'm I'm really excited to expand my sphere of influence more than anything. So I've been in charge of a company for so long and just focused on company level improvement, and now I get a chance to actually make some serious change at a department level, and I'm pretty stoked about that. I like how you primed uh, and, and your focus was on your, your sphere of influence. I always appreciate that when, when somebody says that, and that's one of their goals for promotion too. Um, it's not more money. It's not a better pension. It's not more respect. It's, Hey, I can, I can help change things for the better. Um, so you kind of primed this a little bit, uh, but you said you've been on the job uh, and, and as a company officer for how long? Uh, 11 years. I've been a captain for 11 years, been a Lieutenant for, um, I was a lieutenant for about five years prior to that um, and a fireman for a short-lived. Um, but yeah, I've been a company officer for almost as long as I've been in the fire service. And I've been able to be in that, like I was saying, that sphere of influence of the three, you know, for um, at least uh, 17 years or so. This is my, my 18th year right now, coming up in 2022. And uh, I brought Howard a lot of problems, my fire chief, Howard Ronwell, a lot of problems with the phase program and how things are being delivered at the company level from uh, the admin perspective. And Howard doesn't like problems. He likes solutions, you know, so he was like, well, you know what, fix it. So uh, offered me the spot in the training division and uh, I'm excited. And uh, chief, you're known to love ladderless trucks with smoothbores. <laughs> yeah, ladderless trucks for sure. Um, I would take all ladders off the engines if I could, but, uh, I don't think we can do that where I'm at. We don't have enough ladders coming, but, uh, yeah, I'm super, uh, involved in engine work. Um, I'm some would say obsessed, uh, but I think, uh, engine, uh, captain is probably the best position on the fire ground. Um, and I'm sure many of many people know you from from being the owner and operator of Smoothbore Cartel. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is for those that might not know and then kind of how that got started? Uh, for sure. So Smoothbore Cartel is my uh, retail company that I have. And I'm, I'm able to uh, sell retail product hats, T-shirts, decals, patches, 
to uh, use the money to help send guys to training all over the country. So it actually got started by one of our battalion chiefs started the company. Um, we were kind of the redheaded stepchild of the county when we went to smooth bores and um, ended up, you know, being cast out into outcasts and forced into a so-called cartel. And that's what kind of where the name came from. It represents our fire department when we started making some extreme tactical change. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. And my battalion chief started, made the first patch for us. And I told him, I was traveling a lot at the time. And I told him, I was like, man, I could, I could push this, but um, I want, I want you to give me some of this revenue so I can send some of the guys that can't afford to go to training around the country to training. And that's how I originally got started with me involved. And then I was the kind of like the poster child to the uh, company because I was the one everybody saw. And I've talked about it in the past. It's kind of like uh, Inspector Gadget, the dude behind the, the dark uh, villain in the chair, you know, petting the cat and stuff. That was uh, uh, the chief that started it because nobody knew him. But uh, I was the face of it. Ended up traveling all over the country and just started giving swag away and then started selling it. And then uh, come to find out he wanted to sell a company and uh, he offered me to buy the company. So I bought the company uh, probably about four years ago, three, three and a half. And uh, now all the, the funds go to send and do the training. So I'm able to not just take a percentage of it, but use it all. Yeah. It's amazing. You do that chief. That's really selfless of you. Um, and if people don't know you from smooth work cartel, then they may know you from, um, from you and uh, chief round one all from uh, FD tactics where you guys teach. Yeah. FD tactics is fun, man. Um, it actually got started. Dave Mellon called uh, me one day. There was a department that posted a fire on Facebook and they were taking a lot of heat from like hit it hard from the yard and a lot of spoof pages. Uh, they're very understaffed and under-equipped this particular fire department. And uh, they had neighbors, you know, uh, humping hose for them, changing air bottles and guys were on scene without air packs. They only have three for the entire department and they just did what they could, you know, and they were taking a lot of heat and, uh, Mellon called me. This was before FD Tactics was even formed, but Mellon called me and was like, "Hey man, let's go. Uh, let's go teach these guys some stuff. Instead of everybody hating on them, let's go down there and try to offer them uh, a better way to be more um, tactically successful with what they have." And so that was the goal. And uh, called Howard. He was all in, and that was kind of like the origination of FD Tactics. Was that um, we put together a, a short little class for this fire department over engine work, and then. Um, went down there and decided, Hey man, we could take this road show, uh, on the road, this show on the road. And then, uh, it's turned into what it is now. And basically we just showed them everything we do in East County, you know, so we weren't showing them any sexy shit. We were just showing them how to operate as a three man engine as we do in East County. And that's all we teach at FD tactics. We try to stay in our lane and we just teach what we do, you know, and I wish more guys would do that, but, um, we, we teach what we do at East County. So the playbook for FT tactics, first engine do class is our tactical guideline from East McGermott County. I'm curious if there's any other training groups out there and maybe, you know, the answer to this, that the chief one, and then the battalion chief of training are kind of the, the two spearheads of an organization. Uh, I think that probably says a lot about, uh, East Montgomery County fire department. Um, and I, I, I don't know of any other ones at the top of my head. Um, I'm curious if there are any other ones. Um, I pushed the next question down lane. I'm going to let you hit that next one. Um, and I'm just going to bring up, 
We talked about how people will likely know you from FD Tactics or Smooth Border Cartel, but everyone will know you. Um, and if they don't know you, they know the page. Uh, but Engine Company Resurrection, you guys got 33,000 uh, followers uh, on your page. And it is, if not the best page, uh, Facebook page for, for firefighting, it's, it's top two or three. And it, it's a great resource. So we're going to get into some of the resources uh, that this page has. But, but where did this all start? And what's uh, what's been the key to your guys' successes? And ECR was a monster that I never thought would be as big as it is. Um, so a buddy of mine that's a battalion chief on the C shift, when I was a captain on the B shift, when I came off duty, I would go ride with him in the chief car and we do what we call looking for fires. We just drive around district, you know, looking for smoke plumes, um, hanging out, talking in the chief car, uh, and then coming up with different ideas on how to change some things in our organization and then uh, other organizations as well. And um, we started brainstorming about a group because, I mean, at the time, um, I was just being introduced to the fire service side of social media. And what I saw was just so nasty and decisive. And it still kind of is in certain places. And we talked about building a group that was engine company related because there wasn't really anything that was just engine company related that we found um, and a place that was well moderated, you know, that we didn't put up with a bunch of BS and uh, brow beating and, you know, we didn't put up with jabs. Um, so we wanted to make a place where dudes felt secure enough to talk about their own organization without taking punches, you know, and that was one of the biggest uh, goals of ECR. And it just kind of grew from there. And I started out ECR with, me and like a hundred heavy hitters that I could think of on social media. And then I just started talking to the heavy hitters back and forth. And then we started letting other people inside the group and it's just been, uh, it's exploded over the last, I think this is the um, fourth year for ECR fourth or fifth coming up, but um, it's just exploded. And uh, the whole goal was to transfer as much information as possible in the most positive way to where um, real debates and conversations could happen without an extreme amount of negativity being involved. I mean, debates are super important and there's a way to do it without taking pop shots at each other. And I think we've, we've, to this point, I used to have to moderate it all the time, go in and, you know, delete comments that were pretty shady and delete people who were just in there to, to screw off. And, you know, but I think we've built a culture in that page now that it's just pretty self-sustaining. Yeah, Chief, I'd say exploded is a uh, maybe an understatement. It is um, it is really blown up, and like you said, and it is such a just extraordinary resource for guys across the country and guys across the country to to pick each other's brains and have those healthy debates. You know, that's how we grow and like kind of push each other to grow and learn from each other without, like you said, um, just you guys being able to set that culture of not taking jazz, but, you know, just bumping elbows with each other and kind of making each other better. Um, speaking of making each other better, um, kind of segue into the next one is um, where I get to see you at least once a year is um, Oath Keepers in Ohio. Uh, can you kind of hit on how you're a, you teach on the engine side and how special of a group that is to us? Man, Oath Keepers is like, my favorite conference of the year to teach, and I've also attended as a student, um, but Oath Keepers is 
everything good about conferences around the country? Because, uh, I mean, a lot of guys don't travel around the country a lot. I'm fortunate enough to travel around the country and go to all over the nation. Um, and there's just some aspects of it that are more inviting than others. And Oath Keepers was established before I became a part of the cadre. I think 2017 was when it was established. I came into the cadre, I think, the third year. Um, but I attended Oath Keepers as a student at first. And uh, it's two days, one engine, one truck day. And I attended the engine day. And how I kind of fell into it was uh, we're pretty heavy on the flat load at East Montgomery County. And uh, we pull the flat load five different ways. We're kind of um, real in-depth in what we do with it. Um, uh, the flat load, I would say, is the most underrated uh, hose load in my personal opinion, out of all of them, uh, just because of the possibilities of what you can do with it. And they were teaching the flat load at Oath Keepers. And um, I tried not to be uh, braggadocious, I guess you could say would be the best word. But um, we were at the bar and I was talking to the dude, his name was Sean Hughes, uh, one of the members of the uh, cadre at the bar. And I was like, man, I could really blow your mind with that flat load. You know, if we get an opportunity, I would like to show you some stuff that we do you know, a little different than um, what you guys were showing us out there. And then uh, talking to him and then Chris Gilpin, the uh, president of the Oath Keepers, um, essentially he was like, hey, man, why don't you teach that tomorrow? And I was like, all right, <laughs> I can for sure do that. You know, so I ended up teaching the flat load the second day. I was supposed to be on the truck side, but engine day is better anyway. Um, but sorry, Nick. But uh, I ended up teaching the flat load the second day all day. And then uh, they called me after the conference and uh, asked me to be a part of the cadre. And uh, it's been history ever since. And now they got me in the stairwell every year. Uh, so if you've attended Oath Keepers, I've met you in the stairwell. Um, so um, the flat load has adapted. The delivery of the flat load at Oath Keepers has adapted to what we do in East Montgomery County. And then Gilpin, you did it as well in uh, Union Township where he was at. But um just a little bit different than we do. But now at Oath Keepers, the flat load's still being taught, but I'm in the stairwell now. So just a real quick tangent off this, kind of to kind of piggyback off this, just a quick question. When you guys run your flat load, is that stacked or is that rick-racked? Uh, it's, well, we just recently went away from crosslays on the new pumpers. It's all okay. off the rear. But essentially, it's a six-foot transverse bed. We just moved it to the rear, and it's not transverse anymore. Okay, so, I mean, it's gotcha. just access from the rear now. But it's a double stack. Uh, it's a double stack flat load with a pigtail. So, I mean, uh, a lot of guys run the flat load as a single stack, and it's tough for them to get uh, versatility out of a single stack like we do with the double stack. Yeah. Okay, perfect. I, I know what a lot of people around here, they go back and forth with each fold of the thing. Um, so instead of being 100 up, and then another hundred up, it's it's back and forth, back and forth for two hundred feet. So I was just curious. Yeah, that's how we run it too. So we start on the cab side of it, and we go uh, every fold is is alternated back and forth. And we put dog ears at one fifty and fifty. Okay, fifty to clear the bed, and then one fifty to shoulder. Uh, one fifty to well, I, I think of it as the two hundred foot is is connected to the pigtail. So you load it from the two hundred to the zero. If that makes okay. sense. Yeah, so absolutely. The, the first set of loops are at the 150, and then the second set of loops are at the 50. So essentially, we've got four short folds and then two dog ears, four short folds and two dog ears. And at that point, with a six foot transverse bed, you can really pinpoint if you load it the same way every time where all of your identifying parts of that load are. Mm -hmm. So I can pull it as a triple, I can pull it as a minute man, you know, I can, I can pull it as a regular flat load if I want. And I know 
where those identifying marks are because we load it the same way every time. Thank you for, for explaining that. Yeah. Um, you're also part of County Fire Tactics. Can you tell us how kind of you got uh, mixed into the fold there? Uh, kind of the same situation with Oath Keepers. I attended CFT conferences in Pensacola. You know, I guess they got got to the point to where they knew I was coming, whether I was going to teach or not. <laughs> and they just decided to put me to work one day. And uh, I can't remember which one was the first time I ever helped teach uh, in Pensacola. I think it was at Water on the Fire, uh, one of the waters, Water on the Fire conferences. But uh, Pensacola Beach, man, is probably the premier spot other than uh, firemanship in Portland at the Crystal Ballroom. Uh, it's probably the, the best venue the, for fire conferences. If you haven't been to Pensacola for a fire conference, you need to get out there. But uh, they do five a year. Next year is going to be the last one for all five. Um, Ike's talking about putting one big conference together. So essentially it'd be one huge conference, but it'll still be all five of his conferences just on one date. I think that's going to be crazy, but, um, that got kind of got in the same situation. I just kept attending over and over and over again until he just decided that, uh, I was there enough to start helping out, <laughs> you know? So, and then I, he just put me on staff. Not surprised at all with that. <clears throat> Well, we just spent the last 20 minutes talking about kind of your stack resume and how much you're helping and how much you're a student and instructor of the fire service, just learning and passing on knowledge. Um, but despite all that, it takes a few minutes talking to you to um, know that despite all that experience and knowledge and everything that you're, um, you're more proud to be a husband. Can you kind of give your wife a shout out there? For sure. Behind every, uh, what is it? Behind every strong man, there's a strong woman. So my wife's actually about four foot 10. She'll say she's like four eleven, but I don't believe it. She's probably less than that. Uh, but she is the strongest woman I've ever met. Um, she puts up with me. She actually went through, I, I was together with her. Uh, we weren't married yet when I went to the fire. She's been with me through my entire career in the fire service. So when I was in the fire Academy, she used to, you know, read me my fire books and my EMT manuals when I was going through school. I mean, she's been through it all, um, but she supports me a hundred percent in what I want to do on the job, off the job and teaching and traveling. And uh, I would not be able to do it without the support structure I have with her. Uh, but uh, it's hard at times just due to the fact that I'm, a, I'm gone a lot. And then now, you know, she's in school right now to be a dental hygienist. So she's off work and I got one income uh, coming in with me. So, I mean, it's kind of, it helps out that I travel and able to bring in income from traveling the country as well. Cause now we're down to one income, you know, but, um, I'm pretty stoked that, uh, uh, to have her, I would not be able to do what I do without her support. That was beautiful, man. So Kyle, what do we think of you besides thinking of your beautiful mustache and your engine <laughs> expertise, which we're going to get to in a bit. Uh, first and foremost, we think of you as a student of the job, going to all of the conferences, taking notes, listening, asking questions, um, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell us just a quick little rundown of some of the conferences that you've been to? And then where does that passion to be a student of the job after 17 years and now a battalion chief of training, where does that come from? Uh, the first part of your question, the conferences I've been to uh, I would say the, the large ones other than FDIC, I've, I've, I'm kind of, uh, um, anti FDIC on that aspect just because of what it is. But, uh, anyway, um, 
small conferences. I usually go to about 12 or 13 a year prior to me even getting into the instructor game. I was attending 12 to 13 conferences a year, and uh, that was all on my dime. Um, but I've got some favorites that I hit, try to hit every year. Um, but really, you can't know enough about this job. And I've always been excited about hearing new speakers and older speakers. And I probably heard Kurt speak more than any other speaker in continuous aspects. And I really like listening to him speak. Uh, Isaacson because you don't get the same one every time so like uh if you hear his water on the fire or death on the nozzle class or or whatever it's always a little bit different every time you hear it you know so I started you know listening to different parts of the country where he delivered that lecture and I'd get a little bit more out of him every time and then the same thing you know with Shoop and uh Brian Brush and you know Anthony Avilo you know the the older older guys but uh I would say firemanship was a big one for me. Um, Pensacola Beach was a big one. Uh, Oath Keepers. Uh, but I've attended conferences all over the country. And, I, and the small conference is where it's at these days, man. There's so many small conferences now that every corner of the nation, you can find a fire conference. You know, um, you got to kind of dig through quality versus quantity on some of that stuff. But um, I just really enjoy listening to Jake's talk about fire shit. You know, so I'll, I don't know if we can cuss on this one or not. But um, I just really enjoy uh, hearing guys talk about fire stuff, man. We can absolutely swear it's America. <laughs> well, there you go. I enjoy listening to Jake's talk about fire shit, man. And getting out into and going back to ECR a little bit, you know, the networking side of ECR is phenomenal in the aspect that you can hear how tactics are, are deployed in other regions of the country. You know, like it, it's really easy to get stuck in your bubble and being able to get out and, the entire nation and listen to guys all, all around the country talking, you know, you can get more out of the bar at these conferences than you can in the classroom sometimes, depending on where you go, you know, and being able to listen to dudes all over the country and hear how tactics are deployed is, is probably the best part about being able to travel to these conferences. So building off that last question, not only are you going to, like I said, all of the amazing fire conferences and taking notes, but you also freely share your notes. Uh, if you've ever been on ECR, you can see your notes and they're beautiful. Uh, you send people to conferences on your dime. Um, and as well as you share anything else that you can get your hands on that you think is worth sharing. If you've never been to the file section of Engine Company Resurrection, Resurrected, Please do yourself a favor and explore one of the best collections of resources that we know of. While some instructors have a tendency to keep all their knowledge and resources kind of close to their chest, why do you so openly share all of your info with anyone and everyone? That's got me into trouble a couple of times, especially like uh, pictures of slides. Some guys have taken offense to that, but um, I, I've always seen it as, you know, not everybody is fortunate enough to travel the country and, you know, attend 12 to 13 um, conferences a year, you know, but uh, I always took the uh, opportunity to share what I was able to pay into and listen to with anybody who was wanting to, to get a hold of it. And that's why I kind of only did it on ECR a lot because it's a it's it's referred to as a secret group. Like you can't search anything in ECR, you're either a member and you can see it all, or you're not a member and you can't see any of it, you know, but, um, I've caught in some heat from some <laughs> high level instructors of some pictures of their program or notes that I've taken in their class, which I always thought was just kind of, um, 
I was taken back by some of the requests that I've gotten in the past to pull some stuff down, but you know, I always saw it as, is, you know, preaching the good word to people and getting people the opportunity to attend classes when they weren't able to attend classes. You know, um, I've always been trying to be open and transparent, you know, with the, um, abilities that I've had. And I think it's important, you know, and going back to your other part of that, of, of sharing, uh, your personal stuff. So I've, I've put almost every class that I've done out for free, you know, like my stretch class that I did for, um, uh, on a zoom, when the zoom craze started, when the COVID stuff hit, you know, I put that out for everybody. The cruel intentions class is essentially my firehouse vigilance talks that I did with, uh, Corley Moore. But I think it's important that, um, this information is shared, you know, uh, field says it bets, uh, information should not be hoarded, you know, and it's, it's sad. Some of these dudes out there, they want, they want you to attend, but you can't record, you know, you, they don't want you to share any pictures and, you know, it's just kind of crazy to me sometimes, but, um, I think if we were all more, a little more transparent, everybody would be better. Yeah, absolutely. Chief can't disagree with that at all. Um, so when we decided, like when we, when the guys told me we were going to uh, be talking to you for this podcast, I, uh, went back to my notes from when I, uh, first met you at the, um, damn area fools, like our fools group brought you into Iowa. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me in my notes looking back was when you talked about um, it was just something kind of different than most people say leadership wise. Not that those things are wrong, but this was kind of like new and refreshing is how you measure your success as a, as a leader is how, um, how good you make your pro be that you want to make your, you want to make your pro be and your firefighters better than you. Um, can you go a little bit into that for us on how you make that happen? And I always saw that as the biggest achievement is to bring the knowledge and skill level up of the people that are around you. That's really how you should be measuring, especially as a company officer, how you should be measuring success. You know, I've talked to guys that are, you know, bosses on rigs that, you know, they want their guys to come to them every time a decision needs to be made. And, you know, I'll let you in on, you know, what I'm thinking at a later date type mindset, but I was always open with, information with my guys because I wanted them to think you know I want guys to be able to make those decisions in absence of me you know and the biggest thing is I'm a, I ride a three-man engine you know so I'm not there with my dude to make all the decisions for him and I want to be able to have him have the mindset of being an independent operator and if I want him to make good decisions I have to prepare him for all those situations and give him everything that's inside my head you know and the re and the why of what what we do on the fire ground so he can make that decision in the absence of me, you know, cause I'm a plugman that wears a red hat, you know, 90% of the time when we're on the fire ground. So, I mean, he has to make those decisions by himself. And, uh, I wish more dudes would take that and run with it. And it's always really joyful for me to see my proby teach somebody, you know, like I was a proby machine for a real long time, probably 10 years, every year I had a new guy. And I always thought, I, I thought it was awesome that I could infest and infect other shifts, you know, that I get a year with a dude and then I get to turn him out on another crew and, you know, and know that I could take some ownership of the knowledge base of that crew, what they have now, you know, and, and be able to hand people pre-made success. I, I always thought it was, it was a very honorable thing to be able to do. And uh, one of the biggest things that I try to do with my probies is when they learn a new skill, I make them teach it. 
you know, so I'll make them teach it to somebody in order to drive that skill home. And it really gives me an, a, a chance to step back and figure out whether or not he really, he or she really truly understands the skill is when you have to teach it to somebody, you really have to know in depth reasoning as to why you're making these decisions to be able to convey that to someone else. And it was always a joy for me to watch new guys do that. But yeah, I think it's a hundred percent on the captain to make your other guys better. And that's really your level of achievement is how good are the people that work for you? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really awesome take on it. And um, for everybody listening, I can personally attest that chief is putting his money where his mouth is. He, uh, he brought his rookie to oath keepers this last year. So that was pretty cool to see. And um yeah, I'm sure that, you know, that I'm sure that went both ways on being able to kind of reinforce everything that you're teaching your rookies, seeing that it's being done everywhere else too. And that, you know, he's learning from other people and um, I'm sure that was just both ways, just super beneficial for both of you and rewarding for you on your end. Um, so kind of next question is um, coming up with questions. We reached out to your uh, department chief, chief Reinwald, who you um, teach with, with FD tactics as well. And, um, for in, some insider info, and uh, he wanted us to kind of ask you how teaching kids in high school before academy <laughs> made you better as an adult instructor. Yeah, so I spent a little time in the uh, high school fire academy um, there locally. So in 2012, I think, yeah, 2012, because I did it for five years. 2012, they uh, wanted to make a high school fire academy at the local high school. Um and they came to our fire department and asked if uh, they would have any instructors that would teach it. And I was put up for the job by my current chief or not the current chief, but the past chief of my fire department. And I, I ran with it. I did it for five years full time and I really enjoyed it at times and I really hated it at times, <laughs> you know, so it was a struggle sometimes, but um, I really enjoyed and it's really helped me now because I see why guys that are fresh out of the academy don't know what they need to know. They don't know, they don't understand the aspects of the real fire ground versus the academy life. And I was able to isolate issues with the information and how it was delivered. And it's not really the academy instructor's fault. It's the time frame in Texas, at least. I can't speak for all over the country, but the time frame in Texas that you have to deliver everything that the all hazards um, fire Academy that they want you to deliver. There's not enough time to cover everything they need to know. Plus what's in the, in the street, you know, and th that really opened my eyes up as to why there's a lot of people lacking baseline fire ground knowledge when they step out of a 497 hour, this is 497 hours in Texas is what your fire Academy is. And that split up between all hazard responses and it really opened my eyes up as to why people were lacking in the knowledge base and experience um, for the street level. So just out of curiosity, you said 497 hours with all hazard. Does that include medical? Is that uh, EMT as well? Or is that just fire, rescue, extrication, et cetera? No, that's just fire, 497 hours. Okay. EMT program is a, a two-year program after that. Okay. Uh, Chief also uh, kind of told us to ask you about how teaching for a few years ended up being the catalyst that made you who you are today. So, so where was that kind of spark that turned you into the Kyle that everybody knows now? 
Well, kind of like what I was just talking about, uh, it's all ties in is that I found out from the inside of the Academy life, why they didn't have the information that they needed stepping onto the truck floor on the first day, you know, and I was always over <laughs> on my schedule. I never kept a good schedule because I had an obligation to give them what they had to know. And I had a, um, a mental, you know, my own obligation to myself to, to give them more as to what they're actually going to see and what they're going to need to know when they hit the street. And so I was over on all the schedules all the time. You know, I never had a, uh, I was never done with a chapter when I was supposed to be done with a chapter. And it was really frustrating um, the time frame that I had to work with. And like Howard was telling you, it was the catalyst as to why we teach what we teach now is that I'm filling in the gaps of what I know exist because I live that life. And now I know what they, at least in Texas, what they know for the test. And I'm able to fill in those gaps with the extra. And it really, when I quit teaching the fire Academy in 2017, it would, it really lit a fire under my ass to give guys what they needed to know prior, or I guess, after the academy uh, because I, I was on the inside for five years and you know and it's the manuals that are handcuffing people uh to the point to where they only give them you know what they need to know because there's so much there i mean and like i said you're handcuffed by the clock and you can only give them so much and i tried to take notes throughout the whole five years while i was there of what i couldn't give them and then give them that afterwards yeah, absolutely. I always feel like so deflating. It's always like when somebody's going through to get their, you know, basic fire one stuff, like, it's like, Hey, here's what we're teaching you for the test. And then here's how you really do it in real life. And um, it's like, as an instructor, kind of a segue is how important is it to fully and clearly explain the why behind our actions? And um, can you, can anyone be great without understanding like really understanding the why I think that people can be great. Um, I think that people can be accidentally successful a lot, you know, without the why. And it's unfortunate, you know, like Dennis talks about being able to, if he could make water like a quarter less effective than it is right now, you would really find out how, how good people really are, you know, cause he could, he terms it as a water grenade. You know, it's like, uh, if I want to, if I want to kill somebody, I want to throw a grenade into a room, I can be successful. And that's what we do with the nozzle. I mean, we're, our flow rates are so high and it's really easy to measure failure with success in a lot of aspects because water is so effective, you know? So, I mean, there's a lot of fire, very large fire departments that get away with not fully understanding the why the Houston fire department would be one of the biggest examples of that. And I can attest to that because I'm right here next to them is that those dudes are excellent at fire suppression and they do it over and over and over again at a high rate. But I would say that I, it's hard to say that their tactics aren't are wrong, you know, because they're so successful, but they could be so much better in the times that they get jammed up and they have more line of duty deaths than a lot of people because they go to a lot of fires, more fires than a lot of people. But in those particular line of duty deaths that you can research on them, the reasons they got jammed up could be fixed, could be 
you know, explained a little better. And it's kind of like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. But um, I would say that they don't, they don't necessarily have a reason to understand the why with their organization because truck work is so prevalent. They're opening the roof very quickly, you know, especially with like the engine side of things, but um, they're bringing a lot of water to the table at a high nozzle pressure and they're unable to open the nozzle and keep it open, you know, so it leads them down the road of building a lot of bad habits that end up biting them in the ass when they go to those as, Kevin story would call a Walmart fire, which is not a fire in a Walmart. It's a fire so hot. You wish you worked at Walmart instead of the fire service. You know, when they go come across those Walmart fires, they're a little bit less apt to be able to understand why they couldn't overtake them. But um, I think understanding the why is very important. And I, I take time in every single one of my classes, no matter what skill I'm teaching to make sure to drive home the why, because the why leads to the how, you know, if you, if you teach somebody, the why of a, a skill set or an operation, you don't necessarily have to drive home the how as far because they understand the point of why they're doing this skill in the first place. You know, so I mean, it, they go hand in hand. And I wish more instructors would take more time with the why. And it may be that they just don't have time to do it in that particular session. Or, you know, unfortunately, a lot of guys don't really have a true good understanding of why. You know, there's a lot of, of guys that, you know, learn today, teach tomorrow is a big problem in the fire service right now. So, I mean, they go and take a class and learn a skill set. And then two weeks later, they're, you know, on Facebook teaching somebody else how to do it. And they don't really understand the how and don't understand the why at all, you know, but that's on another topic. But uh, I think uh, I think the why is very important. And I wish more guys would spend more time on it. I love how you just said that. Um, and a couple of those analogies kind of sparked some other analogies and metaphors for me. And one of them was kind of this accidental success. One of the things that kind of that, that I keyed in on, and I heard this somewhere else and I forget where I heard it, but it was kind of along the lines, like if you can punch like Mike Tyson, you don't need to worry about defense or any other aspect of your game. You're just waiting for that one punch. Yeah. So because you're so good at something, because we're bringing so much water and we're hitting it with a hundred and, 60 uh gallons per minute or, or 185 or whatever we're hitting it with there is a giant buffer um which really starts weeding out and and kind of filtering out some of the intricacies of the job like oh i don't need that i have enough i'm good enough fires always go out no one ever gets hurt kind of that mentality when we're going in there with that that grenade um so i appreciate how you how you worded all that um, so thank you for that. You have another phrase that, that I love, that we love, uh, hunt the intakes. Uh, can you describe what that means and how to go hunting? This is kind of where we're transitioning to the, to the, the engine expertise right now. But what does that mean and, and how do we go hunting? So hunting the intakes is, is an older way of locating the fire room before ticks, you know, before breathing apparatus. You know, the old dude, if you talk to dudes that were pre-SCBA, and you'll notice and if, and if guys are really into the job enough to where they're reading these UL reports and they're reading, you know, the, the science behind what they're finding inside these buildings on fire is that pre SCBA is the tactics that we're going back to early water often, you know, um, and, and if you talk to anybody that was pre SCBA, they had to open the nozzle, 
You know, they didn't have the, the level of protection we have now. They had no breathing apparatus. The only way they could breathe was the nozzle open. You know, so, I mean, Brian Brush said it's at best. The only difference between the 1920s firemen and the civilian was the nozzle. You know, so, I mean, the mindset and tactical abilities of the engine company that we're finding out, well, guys are reading in these UL studies coming out is that they're using pre-SCBA tactics. You know, so one of those big pre-SCBA tactics was hunting the intakes. So you want to be able to, to your water is going to be best used in the intake, way better used in an intake than an exhaust. And you're going to be able to find the fire room quicker if you just take some time at the front door and look under the smoke to see where the smoke is being drawn to. And it's one of your biggest ways of being able to locate the fire, especially in single family dwellings. You know, it's hard to do in multifamilies and apartment buildings and, you know, large commercial fires, but single family dwellings, pretty simple you know, to, to locate the fire. If you're able to bring the heart rate down, take some time and when you make entry to the front door, because as soon as you make entry to the front door, nine times out of 10, you lose visibility. And guys get in the habit of rushing through the threshold and they don't take the time to take it all in and take a minute to make a minute and take that second to pause at the front door and look under the smoke. You know, where are we turning in this building? We're going left, we're going right, we're going straight. You know, the life fire layout that you guys talk about in your classes and, and BIB as well. You know, I think, and I see it on YouTube more often than anything. It's like you watch a helmet cam of a fire on YouTube and the, the helmet cam is like focused in on the doorknob and they don't see anything else, you know, and they just run 90 miles an hour to the front door and then give it a boot. And then in they go and, and the camera goes black. And it's like, well, had we paused for like five, 10 seconds at the front door and just looked under the smoke we would be able to read what room we're going into, where the hallway is. The intake will tell you everything about that building, you know, specifically in single family dwellings, you know, and it's, it's an old head trick that a lot of guys don't really talk about, but I mean, it's one of the easiest ways to find the fire. You know, it's one of the ways that I teach my probies, you know, cause if I'm doing my 360, if you're in an area that does 360s, I don't have row homes of like, you know, long structures in my district. So I'm able to go look at the back. You know, nine times out of 10, when I step off the rig, I'm going to look at the back and I'm returning to the front door, you know, but uh, if my guy has the door open prior to that, I want him to look under that smoke. I want him to look for that 10% search. You know, I want him to find, you know, live fire layout, try to figure out which way we're going in the building, especially if it's buttoned up, but um, hunting the intakes is definitely an old head trick. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, exterior and interior size up is super beneficial very helpful um yeah like so scott Gilmore, Corgan says it starts on the outside and is confirmed on the inside yeah absolutely absolutely so um kind of going down the path of some more phrases that you um are using that's really good can you can you kind of expand on uh, water application and where to put it uh it's pretty situational but i mean really to break it down simply you're either, and depending on what kind of nozzle you're using as to how aggressively you're going to have to move it. So like one of the things that's not taught a lot with smooth bores is you have to aggressively move the smooth bore, you know, so we're all smooth bores in East County. It's a big solid stream of water, big droplets, and you need to break that solid stream up into large droplets. And how we do that is match the box. So, I mean, I teach water placement in two different aspects. It's either local cooling or distant cooling. So, I mean, if I'm in a proximity of a room that I want to cool, I'm going to use local cooling, which is maxing the box, start high, move low, 
let the stream read the building or the box that you're in because a building fire uh, a structure is a box full of boxes so i mean if if we can't see the stream will tell us the feedback of our stream the audible feedback will tell us what the box looks like you know so we try not to leave anything behind us I, in local cooling i want to match the box so if i'm in a position to open the nozzle everything gets water so i i move from local cooling to distant cooling distant cooling would be like an offset room or a hallway and i'm reaching out to touch um, that space or that box with my stream so essentially there's only two ways we're going to apply water it's either local or distant and they're done differently you know so local cooling is done where i'm matching the box all around me distant cooling is when i've isolated an offset box yeah absolutely um Another phrase is uh, which our mutual friend and your fellow podcaster, uh, James Elizabeth, kind of got into. I don't know, he kind of had some guys get on his video, like that's not very practical and stuff. But a couple months ago, he posted a, a video on victims located while in the nozzle, kind of what to do. And you kind of hit on that. Uh, yeah, it was unfortunate that a lot of guys uh, negatively commented on that video, but. I think it's something that needs to be talked about specifically with short staff crews, you know, but um, the main thing that guys need to remember is that's situational. So when they see a video of guys in a parking lot with clear visibility, they're just going through reps, you know, they're going through reps and they're going through the mindset of what needs to happen if they're in a situation where fire is impinging on them and they discover someone. And I think that was left out of the context of that video and it was unfortunate, but um, the context of that, that situation is that you are in an area with active fire conditions and you discover a victim on the nozzle. What do you do past that point? I mean, I obviously don't want to put the nozzle down. The nozzle needs to flow, but somebody's got to make the grab. So I would rather prepare my guys for that prior to black and orange rolling out of the joint, you know? So, I mean, you prepare them for that in the drill where you have full visibility and less PPE on. And that's where most guys, they hate on dudes that do that and film themselves. But I mean, I'm not going to be able to film that in a fire condition. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, the, the video of that would look like a black screen, you know? So, I mean, it's hard for guys to understand context without visual stimulation, but a lot of those videos lack that context of when that particular skill would be useful and when it needs to be executed like that. And I would think flow and move would be another one that's like that. So a lot of guys watch videos of guys flowing and moving through buildings and pallet rooms and burn buildings, but they only get half of that equation there. You know what I'm saying? So like most people don't do the context of why that action is happening. And like we were talking about earlier, the why is super important, you know, but if you leave out the context of when that application of that skill is going to happen and why it's happening, you, you shouldn't be mad when people hate on it because you left the context that you left the door wide open, you know, like, when would I do this? I was like, well, if I would have typed up an explanation that explained context and when and where I wouldn't even, even open that door to allow them to say, this is dumb and I would never use this. And it's like, well, if you're in a hallway and you've got fire looking down on you and you find a victim, this is exactly when you would use this. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you put a dude in a hallway with fire looking on him, he's obviously not going to put the nozzle down. 
you know, and if he does, he's going to regret the decision. You know what I mean? But um, you got to explain the context with these guys and you need to talk to your people about what's going to happen if and when, because it's, it's not, if it's when, you know, you're going to discover somebody on the nozzle. If you go to enough fires. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the guy on the nozzle. Yeah, absolutely. And and especially as an incident commander, you know, as an incident commander, what I want to hear from the nozzle crew is either I've got water on the fire, I'm flowing water, or I'm not. Those are the three things I want to hear from the nozzle crew. So, I mean, if you put your nozzle down to make a rescue, I want to know that as an incident commander. I want to know that I need to send somebody to that fire room to start performing fire suppression because you have ceased the process. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, that's something that I would want to know as an incident commander. But you got to prepare people for when it happens because it's going to. You go to enough fires. The funny thing about dwelling fires is they have dwellers inside of them. You know, so, I mean, you're going to come across some dwellers in your career if you go to enough of them. Wild concept there, Chief. Wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, kind of moving along, a couple more of your phrases is uh, booster tank backup. Man, booster backup is one I got from Ike. And uh, there's a lot of different phrases that say the same thing. But like Rob Fisher, they do a two-engine attack. Um, my buddy Derek Roberts calls it something different in uh, South County, Washington. But essentially what you're doing is you're combining the booster tank and the crews of the first two engines. So, I mean, essentially what we're trying to prevent is first do laying in, second do laying in, and both of those crews go to the fire scene immediately. And I get double the crew, I get double the water. And Ike says it best. You got to use water in order to need water. So, I mean, if I haven't had a drop come out of my engine, why am I laying a line down the street? You know, the only thing I'm doing is it delaying the amount of time that we can get hands and eyes of firefighters on potential victims inside the building. You know, so the booster backup, what it allows us to do is tie both engines together and tie both engine crews together in order to get a search crew and a, a hose line inside the building as fast as possible. You know, and we, we developed that from uh, talking to Ike over the years. So like Howard and Ike, have, Ike has been Howard's mentor for a really long time. And before I even met Ike, the first time I ever heard Ike speak was at Firemanship in Portland. And I had just came back from the academy and Howard had just taken over like a year earlier. And our protocols had really changed. It was like an avalanche of change when Howard took over. And the first time I ever heard about Booster Backup and you know, the ideas that came out of um, Ike's class, the water on the fire class, um, I saw in our protocols. So when I'm sitting through Ike's class, I'm like, this this dude's talking about our protocol. I'm looking at another guy from our fire department. I'm like, this dude's talking about our protocols. So I call Howard. I'm like, hey, man, you ever heard of this dude? He's talking about our protocol. He's like, no, bro, we do what they do. He doesn't do what we do, (laughs) you know? So that was my first, you know, real introduction into Ike. But I mean, we were doing booster backup um prior to that but I mean, it just makes sense man and especially in a rural area where I, I don't come from the land of 200 feet every 200 feet there's a hydrant you know so we do relay operations we do dump tank operations on the regular out of my 144 square miles i would say 80 to 90 percent of it is non-hydrated you know so everywhere we go we got to bring our own water so booster backup just makes sense for us you know if i had a hydrant every 100 feet it would be different I think, but we would still send the first crews to the fire. But um, the whole point of booster backup, tie both tanks together, tie both crews together. And I have the tactical redundancy 
to be able to pump through my first engine if it fails. So I don't know if you've ever been on an incident where the first or any pump fails, you know, because they will. It's a mechanical device and electronic mostly these days. But by the booster backup action, I have the ability to pump through that first engine if I have an engine failure of the first line. And I can instantaneously get water back to the line to the guys inside. So, I mean, the funny thing about apparatus these days is they've got all these safety features to protect the truck itself, but zero to protect the engine crew. You know, so, I mean, everything on that rig is designed to protect all the expensive parts of that rig. But I could give a shit less if you burn the truck down. I want you to make sure my guys have water inside immediately. You know, and that gives us the ability to pump through that truck like a manifold as well. You know, but uh, our policy is third due water supply, and that's where that boosts your backup. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's not a tactic for everybody, obviously. You know, like way denser populated apartments, you know, it may be just third, fourth engine or something is grabbing – you know, grabbing the hydrant or something like you don't need that booster backup, but like where you guys are a little more rural and, uh, rural, uh, and spread out and stuff. Like you guys, I would argue it's a great tactic from any organization, no matter what your size, you know, because I mean, what we're gaining out of that versus the potential issues with that are, are pretty slim. You know I mean? Like I was saying, Ike says, you like, he says best, you don't need water till you use water. And, you know, and depending on, but I saw, you know, the size tanks that are there. If you've got two 500-gallon tanks, you got got 1,000 gallons. We run 750s where I'm at on most of our engines. But uh, two 750s are 1,500 gallons, you know, and, and if something happens to that first new engine, I've got the 750. Uh, but 1,000 gallons is a lot of water, man. You know, 160 gallons a minute, you know, 1,000 gallons can last me, you know, eight minutes or so, depending on how you're pumping it. You know, so, I mean, uh, I would argue that it's a good tactic for any size organization. Culture is going to be the big um, enemy to booster backup because like culturally, especially on the East coast, you know, like Pennsylvania and, you know, all those areas over there where they've been laying, laying first due Washington, DC, you know, uh, they lay first due on everything, you know, so culturally it would be a huge change for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So chief, you said something there that third due is that third due engine is going to third be supply. Engine third do apparatus do you guys have trucks there too probably a stupid question we have a quint, quint uh in yeah. our organization and we've got uh we've got no true trucks in east montgomery county or montgomery county as a whole they're all quints every ladder truck in the county is a quint but we don't consider the ladder truck in booster backup or in water supply so when the ladder truck shows up on location it's a it's a ladder you know and unless it's first due and if it's first due it's an engine until the engine gets there and then the engine's yep. the engine you know, but we would never use our ladder truck for booster backup. It's not even in the equation, you know, for booster backups. So it's the, the third due engine would be water supply, whether they're okay. going to, and we don't do forward lays in my fire department. We reverse lay everything. So essentially best case scenario, first due engine, ladder truck, second due engine, third due is going to back down and reverse out or come from a different area of the street to, to drive past the scene and reverse out to either an intersection or to set up a dump tank operation or a, uh, the nearest hydrant, but we've okay, totally so taken forward lay out of everything that we do. So just painting a picture here, let's assume that this part of the city is hydranted. Mm -hmm. First due is going to be an engine. They're going to be attack and they're working off their, their tank. Let's say the next apparatus in is that Quint. What are they tasked with right now? Uh, do I need to send them to the roof? Okay. And what do you guys ride? You guys ride two, three, four, 
on your rigs? You ride three on everything. But that, that okay. was the question. Do I need to send them to the roof when they show up? Uh, let's assume for this scenario, no. They would be what we would refer to as the stack-up crew. So the stack-up crew, what they're going to do is stack in on that first hose line and help that okay. hose line move to the fire. And then okay. as soon as that, that water on the fire benchmark is met, they split search from the okay. fire room back. Perfect. So, so if they arrive third due, let's say the ladder arrives third due, and I've got two engines on location, that second due engine would be the stack-up crew. And then essentially that ladder truck crew that showed up third, let's say they showed up third, they would be whatever the situation called for. I'd either send them to the roof or we could send them in for a search. But essentially our stack-up crew, the booster backup crew is going to be referred to as the stack-up crew. They're stacking in on that. We're marrying those two companies together on that first due hose line. So there's no reason to pull a backup line if the first line hadn't made to the fire room yet. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, we're going to stack both those crews on that first line to move it as quick as possible to the fire room. And as soon as with that, that chief here's benchmark water on the fire and the stack up crew essentially as well. So like say the second due engine is there, but the ladder's not there yet. And we get water on the fire. They're split searching. They're not waiting for the assignment. The assignment is made by the benchmark of water on the fire. So anybody who's not on the nozzle, in that building when the water on the fire benchmark comes out is now the search crew. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's perfect. I was trying to pull on that thread just to kind of see where those priorities lied. So we have water on the fire, obviously is kind of our first and foremost. And with that, you have the, you know, your, uh, your booster tank backup or your, your two engine attack or nursing or whatever we're going to call it. Yeah. And then you also have a little bit more flexible. It sounds like you have ventilation, uh, and search kind of in there as well. So I just kind of want to see where this was all at in regards to where a positive water supply was at. And you're speaking to my biases, so uh, I'm obviously going to like this, but but how you're explaining this makes a ton of sense. For sure. The nozzle is the most important tool on the fire ground because it protects the most important job on the fire ground, which is the search. You know, so the nozzle being in place allows that search to happen more quickly and comfortably. You know, so that's our whole goal is to intentionally out the gate with cruel intentions, put water in the building along with the search crew as fast as possible, you know, and not stopping at the street to catch a plug and not sending my second due to lay a line gives us the ability to do that. You know, we infest the building immediately, you know, and it's better for everybody involved, better for civilians, better for firemen, you know, better for everybody. That's our interior writ team, so to speak. I love cruel intentions. Uh, not only is it great for your, your operations, but also a great movie. For sure. <laughs> no surprise. Nick is a fan of chick flick movies. Uh, it's a classic. Uh, I don't see that as a chick flick. I think that you're putting it in a box. It doesn't, it doesn't live in a box. Yeah. My wife's a big Gosling fan. So she was good on that one. That was Ryan Felipe. Oh, well, I'm a liar then. You can just cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> no, because that just kind of went, yeah, that proved me right on that one. For yeah, that's kind of funny that you knew that pretty quick, though. Don't judge me. <laughs> uh, all right, so kind of building off of that one is, so especially with your district, so what are the actions of, it's like next one's actions of an engine crew with, uh, like when the second second news delayed? Oh, man, those are my favorite fires. So when I was an engine captain, I worked at engine, Station 5, Engine 155, and we're on the north side of our 144 square miles, so it's lonely on the north side. So those are my favorite fires. I've got a helmet cam from about two years ago that I was on scene 16 minutes prior to second due arriving, and I really like those fires because you get to do it all. You get to do truck work. You get to do engine work. 
you get to do search, you get to do it all, you know? So, um, it really opens, it has to, I mean, your tasks saturated at that point, cause you got a lot of stuff going on and you got to prioritize some things on the fire ground better as the first due engine officer than you would if you had a symphony of air brakes, you know, within the first 45 seconds to two minutes, you know, but, uh, it, uh, definitely has to open your mind a little bit more of what your abilities are. Um, cause the only thing you can do with less is less, you know? So, I mean, you got to kind of spread your guys out. My driver's a working driver at that fire more than any other fire. You know, um, he's my doorman. He's the guy humping hose for me. Cause I've got to expose, you know, cause I've never made a fire that didn't go up, you know? So, I mean, somebody's got to bring a hook inside. Somebody's got to expose attic access, you know, and all that has to happen with that first due engine of three guys, you know, but, um, those are fun fires for me, uh, because we get to do it all, um, on that particular fire, it was 16 minutes. That's the, the most frequent one, 16 minutes before second due arrived. Uh, and when second due arrived on location, we were walking out with white smoke. We had three rooms of fire in a rocking attic fire. Um, so we were able to search, we were able to do some truck work, uh, pulled some ceiling to get water in the attic, uh, and then extinguished three rooms of fire before second due got there. So those are, those are fun fires for me, man. I dig it, but you definitely got to prioritize, man. So, I mean, as the first due engine officer, I can't just hold hose. The hook's got to make it inside. You know, the, the search has to happen immediately, you know, so, um, you got to prioritize a little bit. So if you're preparing your guys only to do engine work, when they show up, it's a disservice, especially with, uh, 144 square miles and 16 minutes second due, you know, that situation happens all over the country. You know, so we need to put water on the fire, but we, the search still has to happen. You still got to get in the attic. You know, you still need things to happen quickly on the fire ground or else it's going to, it's like Bruno Cini said, the first five minutes determine the next five hours, you know, so you got to, got to be able to get on it pretty quick. Thank you. I know we could go in, in depth and, and pull on those threads quite a bit more, but I appreciate uh, everything that you said uh, there and, and all four of those phrases. Uh, we got from your chief as well. He wanted to make sure that that you hit on those. He thought those were ones that you would knock out of the park, and and he was uh, he was right on. Uh, transitioning now to some questions that we kind of ask everybody at the end, uh, and this is broad brushstrokes here. But when it comes to in your choice here, engine work, training, the job in general, what are we, uh, the American Fire Service, doing correctly, and what are we doing incorrectly? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um let's do training. Uh, I would say that we are very good at spreading knowledge today, more than we ever have in the past, being able to spread knowledge base, being able to spread skill set. But going back to what we talked about earlier in the podcast is that the why is missing from a lot of that. And I would say the instant gratification of social media is probably to blame for that a lot. Um, just because, I mean, unless you're Jay Bonifield and your, your post is, you know, 15 pages, um, along with the videos to support it, you know, I mean, nobody's doing that, you know, they're just recording 35 to 40 seconds of a skill set and then putting it out with no explanation and no context. And then guys are mimicking it. You know, guys see the stairwell push is probably the best example in my situation that and i finally posted a video of the why of the stairwell push and i actually titled it that in the post before i got removed from facebook unjustly and everything i ever put there 
disappeared. But uh, I actually titled it the why of the stairwell push, you know, because I mean, guys would see me pushing stairs and me teaching guys to push stairs. And it was my fault for lacking the context and lacking the why of that particular push, you know, and then guys mimic it and their water applications horrible in that situation. And their, you know, their hand movement and their foot movement, could be a little bit better in certain areas, but it's my fault for not adding context and where the water needs to be placed in those situations. So I would say that would be probably the thing that we're doing poorly in training is explaining skill set without explaining context. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, um, especially like coming from going through academies or going through, you know, just basic classes is like when you're starting out, you know, like you're not getting in as depth as you could and should be on things to really have the understandings on why and what, you, you know, what not only what you're doing properly, but like why. Yeah. And it's hard to do in the academy because, I mean, you think about the live burns in your fire academy that you went through. What did they tell you not to do? You know, the, the list of things not to do was longer than the list of things to do. You know, don't put the fire out. Don't put water on smoke. You know, don't, you know, flow the nozzle for more than, you know, 10 seconds in the fire room. You know, I mean, how can we do that for nine months out of the fire academy to guys and then expect them to do anything different when they get in the street? You know, so, I mean, it's it's a huge disservice and it's unfortunate. And it took me, like I was saying earlier, being in that that arena for five years to realize is like, man, these guys don't know shit, <laughs> you know? So we got to really show them what they need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, next question. So if you had a crystal ball and could see into the future, what do you see the fire service training and learning look like in 10 or, 10 or 20 years? Um, or hope that it looks like, man, I hope that it continues to grow. Um, I think it's going to be a downfall eventually for us though we're going to get so many conferences and we're going to get inundated with small conferences that the big the large ones will go away and i think that's going to be unfortunate um so like we already saw with firemanship you know firemanship's pretty much gone for now but it had nothing to do with small conferences it has everything to do with covid but um i think that we're going to be inundated with small conferences around the country to where every weekend you know almost you'll be able to go to any quarter of the country to go to a conference and you know and that could that's twofold you know so i mean you got to fill those with instructors so i mean you start getting quantity over quality there in a lot of those places which is unfortunate you know because i mean because the big boys can't be everywhere but uh I, that's what i see in 10 years is nothing but conferences yeah that that's makes a lot of sense so kind of to finish it out is a uh, kind of some rapid fire questions um like we've been do doing on all the other ones is so kind of first one is the uh, best class you've ever attended death on the nozzle well, well can we break it down into two so lecture and hot so lecture absolutely lecture the best class i've ever attended was death on the nozzle by kurt isaacson um that really opened my eyes to what we really don't take advantage of with line of duty death reports. So, I mean, everybody reads NIOSH reports, you know, they, they tell you about the scary boogeyman that's inside the building, you know, and, and it's used to instill fear a lot of times or justify tactics a lot of times. 
uh, instead of taking advantage of the in-depth research that is done on a lot of those to expose weaknesses in our own game. And uh, Death on the Nozzle is probably my favorite lecture because Kurt goes through line of duty deaths that happened with firefighters that were first due on the nozzle. And those are the really the one, because there's not that many of them. There's only about 16 or so, you know, but everybody that rides an engine should read the reports of the first due engine company that gets jammed up with a nozzle in their hand. You know, there's a lot of catastrophic events that happen. You know, guys have heart attacks and motor vehicle accidents and walls fall on dudes and building collapses. And although tragic, they don't really have a lot of information inside that report that could keep me from getting jammed up at the first five minutes, you know, but what I really enjoyed over any other class that I've taken with him is the in-depth look as to not only what happened, but how to combat those particular situations. Um, and I would say the best class that I've ever attended that's for hot would be um, brothers in battle. Uh, their live fire VES. That was probably the best I've ever attended. Right on. I can attest to that as well. Um, so what's your best conference you've ever been to? Firemanship in Portland, hands down. Probably the best conference that will ever be and that ever was. Uh, hopefully it'll come back. Um, with the Pacific Northwest being what it is now, I don't see it coming back in Portland at the Crystal Ballroom. Uh, but if you had a chance to go to firemanship, in the uh, years that it was in Portland at the Crystal Ballroom, you are um, the lucky few. You know, there's about a thousand, I say few, there's about a thousand dudes that attend that conference every year when they had it on. But um, I would say that was my favorite conference. The venue, the quality of student at that conference was like none other. Nobody was there that didn't want to be there. You know, um, and I would say Oath Keepers is a close second. So like Oathkeeper sold out in 65 seconds last year, a hundred spots. So, I mean, those dudes wanted to fucking be there, <laughs> you know? So if, if you got five computers lined up on a table and refreshing five computers in order to get a ticket, you want to be there. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely happened. <laughs> um, and yeah, the firemanship, like I'm bummed. I missed it. And hopefully it does come back and full faith that it will like just knowing those guys, like, they're going to make it happen at some point. So for sure. I see it coming back. It may not be in Portland, yeah. but yeah, I, um, I agree for sure. I see it coming back and the crystal ballroom, it, man, it's just such a badass venue, true floating floor. I mean, Janice Joplin played there, Jimi Hendrix, you know I mean? It's wild. Oh, that'd be pretty awesome. So this may be the longest answered question of the <laughs> entire podcast. <laughs> um, what is the best book you've ever read? Man. Um, yeah, it's a hard question, man. Cause I mean, it depends. It's like, what arena of book do you talk about? You know what I'm saying? So like, is it leadership? Is it fire? Is it, you know, um, I would just stick to fire. Uh, I would say, uh, firefighting principles and practices by William E. Clark out of the fireside was probably the best fire book I ever read. Um, and I say that it's a close second to fire streams management handbook by Dave Fornell. But it's kind of a it's a horrible answer to use fire streams management because you got to pay a thousand dollars for that book. You know, if you want a hardback and you want that fire streams management handbook, you got to pay a grand for it. But um, Clark's book is real easily uh, obtainable. So I would say Clark's book is a close second. And I would say number one that I can still get 
William E. Clark. Yeah, awesome. And listening to to get the rest of your uh, like I learned I personally learned a lot from it. So to kind of give a shout out to the um, Chief Morley and the Weekly Scrap, if you guys want to hear the rest of um, Chief Armagus's um, book list, it's pretty incredible. And um, listen to a couple of his podcasts on the Weekly Scrap and kind of go into depth on that. So we don't need to repeat stuff that's kind of been done before. So, um, and so, so one, let's give yours a shout out. Um, yours, Jay's and James. And then two, uh, kind of answer, uh, what podcast do we need to be listening to? Man, Pipeman Podcast, like you said, uh, I really enjoy talking fire with those dudes. I used to have long Zoom calls with Bonifield, um, and we probably got like 16 hours worth of Zoom calls that I've recorded between me and Bonifield. It's in a folder of my Google Drive called Down the Rabbit Hole, and uh, that was really some fun stuff. Like, that was like in the heat of COVID. And that's kind of like what stemmed out of the, you know, the Pipeman podcast kind of stemmed out of that. Nisbet came to me at Firemanship one day and was like, dude, we need to do something. And uh, we brought Bonifield in. So that obviously I'm kind of partial to that one. Um, but we've been kind of slacking on recording on that one because everything that's going on. But uh, that one we were, our whole goal was to stick to not well-known Jake's. So like the guys that we've had on that podcast so far and the list of guys that we're going to bring on are not well known. And that's what we want to keep it. We don't want to bring, you know, superstars on the podcast. We want to bring dudes that not a lot of people know, like Clet and, you know, Mike Kirby and um, Tanaka, you know, guys that don't, don't really get well known. But uh, as for other podcasts, I like the old fire engineering podcast, to be honest with you, like from a decade ago. So like making the turn with Chris Brennan and PJ Norwood, that was one of my favorites. Um, the kitchen table, um colin kelly uh that one was a really cool one um fireground strategies and other stuff uh would be another good one for me uh, anthony avilo and uh, jim jim duffy um keep fire in your life these are all old podcasts that you can find on blog talk radio on uh uh fire engineering um so you got to really dig uh deep to uh find those though so just go fire engineering blog talk radio on the google drive or on the google search but uh, I really liked Chris Brennan uh, in making the turn. I wish that would come back. And Senior Man um, with Shoop and Bob Pressler. I really enjoy that one as well. Um, but I like the old stuff, man. Wow, those uh, sound really amazing. I know where the next several hours of my life are going to go towards now. So thanks for, thanks for those uh, nuggets there. Well, uh, that kind of wraps it up, um, Chief. And just want to thank you a lot for – um, donating some of your time to to us and kind of spreading the spreading the wealth and helping just teach other firemen just the brothership of learning. So really appreciate it. Yeah, I had fun, Nick. man. Nick. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. Much appreciated, man. Uh, thank you, Lane. Uh, great job, both you fellas, and uh, I can't wait to put this one out there. I'm pretty sure this will be posted online tonight. Um, Jeff has to spend some time with some family, um, but he's a night owl, so he really wants to get this done by midnight tonight, so it's done in 2021. So thank you guys again so much. It's much appreciated. For sure. Yeah, Thanks happy. for having me, man. I had a good time. Happy New Year's, everybody. You too, buddy. Yeah.